Hey guys, how y'all doing? I am so pumped to be here. Thank you, Pastor Brady, for having me. There's nothing I love more than um, speaking to pastors and leaders. It's such an honor and a privilege. And so um, I love this conference uh, for all of those reasons. And I am the big sister. I say that I'm either the big sister or the crazy auntie. And um, I'm the, and, and I'm, I'm the jet lag crazy auntie. I flew in last night uh, from London, and so I don't know what time zone I'm in. I have no idea. So this is the service where anything can happen, and it probably will. So you, you all better uh, be ready. And I am here with the single most ravishing piece of masculine flesh on planet Earth. <laughs> Honey, you want to stand up? This is my husband, Nick, everyone. And um, we have two daughters. I think you guys have got a picture of my girls uh, somewhere. Oh, come up. I can look at it up here. There they are. That's my Catherine Bobby is 13 and um, my Sophia Joyce, who is nine. Uh, the delight of my life. They're such fun girls. And so we just do life together. Uh, we've just flew back in. I'll give you a little bit of a um, just update with where we're at. Uh, we just flew in from London and had meetings in London on Sunday night. For those of you that follow the A21 campaign, we, God has been so awesome. We, uh, in the last eight years, have established um, offices in 12 countries and seen God do really, really amazing things. And right now we are uh, very actively involved in the Syrian refugee crisis. As you're all aware, um, it is the, the single worst uh, crisis of our generation. And... Um, you know, where we had A21, only God could do this. God is so smart. And when we started the A21 campaign in Thessaloniki, Greece, it seemed weird. Why would you start something there? I thought the same thing, really. And um, that was before Greece permanently, you know, bankrupted the planet. But um, I was kind of wondering, like, why? And here we are at the moment, just uh, north of where our office is in Greece, 14,000 refugees a day are coming through. Um, that region and the most painful stories you, you could ever uh, kind of imagine. And so we are working and we've put, been able to um, put in a water system and um, set up some water stations and hygiene packs and health packs. I mean, because it's, it's just horrific what's going on and the trauma that people have gone through. Oh, here it is. Okay, so here's the A21. Um, why, I why I wanted to show you this, and I'm going to get into the word. It's going to tie into what I'm talking about is any of you, and I just met with a group of girls from here that had done my undaunted uh, Bible study, chick power, and um, in that I talk, I open that story with um, a container. Uh, I open that whole book with what I call my Schindler's List moment, which is really going to lead into what I'm going to talk about tonight. My Schindler's List moment of, of really helping people in particular, the area of human trafficking, because there was a shipping container where 60 girls were shipped from Nigeria to Istanbul, Turkey. When they opened the shipping container in Istanbul, Turkey, uh, 30 of the 60 girls had died because the oxygen filtration system had broken. And then they took the remaining 30 girls, put them in um, apartments. This is very common. The traffickers dressed in law enforcement uniforms would uh, rape the girls 10, 20 times a day to break down their defenses. And um, then they put them in a little boat, like a lot of those boats you see on the news at the moment where they're taking Syrian refugees across the water and just traffickers are trafficking them across and they're just dying by the boatloads, literally. And anyway, um, what happened was 25 of these girls, when the Greek uh, Coast Guard was coming through, um, so that the traffickers wouldn't get caught with the girls, they threw them overboard, and um, 25 of those girls drowned. They were from villages that had never seen water, let alone been thrown in the Mediterranean Sea. Five of those girls survived, and when they ended up in, um, in our, one of our transition homes in Greece. Well, I tell you all of that to say, there. Were, can you guys put that shipping container back up? So there was a shipping container that was an object of pain and, and suffering and death and destruction. And I thought, isn't it just like God that now here we are able to convert those very same shipping containers into places of hope and healing and health and be able to put them on the borders and bring life to people. That's, that's what God does. He redeems things and turns them around. If you turn that around, I think I've got some other photos you can see we've put. Um, you, you might think this is not a big deal, 
when you go to these places and there's like literally nothing, this gives people dignity to be able to actually just wash their faces and have a drink of water. And if we can help at least alleviate some of that. So I just kind of wanted to show you that because uh, it's very dear to my heart. We're about to get involved in Croatia and in um, uh, France, in Calais, because there's just so much horror on the earth. And this is the that this is why the church is on the planet, to bring hope and life and liberty, uh, not to run away scared. Um, it's not that God's in heaven going, oh my God, no, I am God, all three of me, I'm having an existential crisis. Did you know what was going to be happening on the earth in 2015? What am I going to do? We're going to have to have a strike. God is not freaking out. This is not the time for the church to freak out. It's the time for the church to rise up and be the salt and light that God has called us to be in the earth. So I could not be more honored to be speaking at a conference with this theme because this is my sweet spot, I'm just saying, about us being light into the world. A few years ago, Nick and I, we do a lot of mission in Greece, um, sorry, in Europe. And we were in Europe, we were in Italy in particular, and I was in this um, beautiful old cathedral, stunning. And you know, for anyone that travels and uh, you go to Europe, you would see many, many of these wonderful old cathedrals that are now tourist attractions. They were built to the glory of God. The architecture, the, uh, the architecture is unbelievable. The, the artwork is priceless that is in there. And often these cathedrals are in the center of the city square because the church was built to be in the epicenter of the city. And this cathedral in its heyday, it would have had at least at least five or 6,000 people in the sanctuary. It was so huge like this one. The artwork was unbelievable. I mean, it was the architectural centerpiece of that city. It was the number one tourist attraction of that city. And we had to pay five euros. We paid five euros. We went up the steeple. And we get to the top and we're looking around the city of Florence. It was absolutely breathtaking. I'm looking at literally dozens and dozens and dozens of people with cameras and they're taking photos of the city and taking selfies of each other and the city and just, you know, doing what it is that tourists do. And standing up there, I started to cry. And Nick looked at me and he said, what's wrong? And I said, do you think the people that built this cathedral, do you think when they built it, do you think the people that gave money for this cathedral to be built, do you think they were thinking in a couple of hundred years it would become a tourist attraction? Do you think when they were sowing into the building fund and the building campaign of that church, do you think they were sowing money because they were believing that the altars would be full of people getting saved? They were believing that marriages would be restored, that people would be healed, that there would be life and liberty spoken. Do you think they built it so that it could house the presence of God and be a light in the middle of a city? Or do you think they built it so it could become a tourist attraction and we could pay five euros for the number one tourist attraction in the city? And I said, how do we not know this isn't gonna happen to us? I said, how do we not know? Our church in Australia, and I've been part of the team at the Hillsong Church for the last 27 years. Our church in Australia, it has won some of the most major architectural awards you could win. It's got state-of-the-art everything when it comes to sound and music and, and everything else that you would want. People from around the world sing our songs like you all know. How do I not know that 100 years from now, people aren't gonna be lining up in Sydney, Australia and saying, oh, remember that church? That, that, that used to sing all those songs? Remember when you couldn't get into these buildings? Because I've been there for 27 years and we've always had revival. We've always had hundreds of people saved every week. We've always, as long as I've known, the phenomena that you may now know as Hillsong has just always been the only thing that I know. So how do we know? Or how do we not know that that isn't going to happen? Because whoever built this, this is more beautiful than our church. This is bigger than our church. The hymns that came out of these churches have been sung all over. We've probably sung one of them tonight. So it's not that hymns have never been written. It's not that beautiful church buildings have never been done. It's not that we didn't have worship leaders or we didn't have preachers. It's not that we didn't have sound and light. So that can't be the key because we've had that in church history before. 
And so there's gotta be something more than us just being better than the church down the road. That us being such a dysfunctional global church family that the best we could do is say, my family's better than my cousin's family down the road. Come here, because we wear skinny jeans and we got tats and we're really cool and we're really uber in the way we do church. And we're cooler than them, they're dorkier than us. Surely life's gotta be more than the Christian church thinking my part of the family's cooler than your part of the family. My building's cooler than your building. The way we sing is cooler than the way you, surely there's gotta be more to it. And I felt the Holy Spirit say to me on that rooftop, Christine, this is what happens when my church stops being the church and my church starts doing church. When we begin to bureaucratize, to institutionalize church culture and religious practices and rituals, when you begin to get more involved in the business of doing church rather than being church in a lost and a broken world. See, the only place that the church can actually be the church is in the world because that's where Jesus sent us. The last thing that Matthew recorded in his gospel before Jesus ascended was I want you to go into all the world, Jesus said, and make disciples. I want you to go into all the world. I don't want you to run away from the world. I don't want you to go into the middle of the, the country and stockpile your water supplies and, and make sure you hide and just wait for the rapture, us for and no more. And I'm really scared of what's going on. The last thing, Jesus Christ came from heaven to earth, worked amongst people, died on the cross and rose again from the dead. And then before He ascended, said, hey, by the way, this is what I want you to be doing. I want you to go into all of the world and I want you to make disciples. Because you see, what happens is when we just start going through a boring religious obligation and we just start doing church, even if we think it's trendy church, when we lose sight of what God came for, when our passion is no longer what God's passion is, when our heart no longer beats for what God's heart beats for, then we are just going through a boring religious obligation. We are not being the church because God's heart actually only beats for one thing, lost people. Jesus came to seek and save that which was lost. For God so loved, not judged, not hated, not despised, but so loved the world. God sent us into this world and God is passionate about us, His people, and us, His church, not doing religious rituals or liturgies cooler than anybody else, but about us being mobilized and trained and equipped to do only one thing, to go into all of the world. That's the whole purpose of why we're still here on this earth. We ought to be passionate for what God is passionate about. You know, the thing that I have found in all of my years of mission in Europe, and now my mission in America, we've been living here for five years and what's freaking the American church out because we're becoming secular, humanist and, and, and it's pluralistic and we live in a relative culture. I grew up in that in Australia. I'm not sitting here shocked. I'm actually really quite happy because finally there's a shaking that's coming on and only those things that can be shaken will be shaken so that the things that can't be shaken shall remain. And the one thing that can't be shaken is the true remnant church because Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell cannot, shall not, will not prevail against the church of the living God. She is alive and well. She's alive and well. Now religious subculture might be dying. Praise God. Praise God. About time. The business of Christianity might be dying. Thank you, Jesus. But the church, she ain't going anywhere. It's all right. Kingdoms rise, kingdoms fall. But the church, she's still here. They've, she, they've tried to wipe us out for 2,000 years. Guess what? We're still here. It's all right. You don't have to worry about that. But the issue is, where's your passion? Because if your passion is not for what God's passion is, then your heart's not beating for what God's heart's beating for. And you've lost your, when you lose your passion, when the church loses her passion, when we try to be slick and cool and trendy, and we try to be conformed to the pattern of this world rather than being transformed by the renewing of our minds so that we can bring transformation to the world around us, something is inherently wrong. Without passion, you can't change anything. You are, you are, I love this about this church. 
And I said to, to Pastor Brady, I would come anytime. I was watching the young people here at the front and I was so grateful to God because I thought we need unfiltered, raw, unadulterated passion. Not cool type, skinny jean, tattooed, super cool, hipster Christianity. We need radical, revolutionary, passionate Christianity that's going to change the world. That's what we need. And so I thought about passion. The word passion in, in Greek, enthusiasm, to be enthusiastic simply means to be en, en theos, in God. En God. Sometimes we go, oh, they're just passionate as if they're like, you know, Christine Kane, she's just really passionate. I'm like, are you trying, to, is that, I don't know, is that like not a compliment? I, I, I don't know what's wrong with that. She's just really full on. She just preaches with passion. I'm like, and what would you like me to do? Like, boring? She's just full of faith. What do you want me to be, full of doubt? Like, I, I don't know, I don't know what, what they're, they're expecting. I'm like, really? Okay, yes, I'm a faith preacher, I guess. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. I'd rather please God than be full of your naysaying cynicism. But anyway, so passionate. I'm jet lagged. This is bad. And we're on the internet. Hello, all of you internet people. I love you so much. And I'm going to get to the text in a minute. It'll be fine. I'll stay on track. For all the right brain thinkers, there'll be five points, all in sequential order. They'll make sense. But then I'll take a few rabbit trails for the chicks. It's okay. Cut me some slack. And so you're okay. You're okay. Passion. What's God passionate about? He's passionate about the lost. Do you remember when Mel Gibson made the movie The Passion of the Christ? Did you notice that it was not called The Boring Religious Obligation of the Christ? <laughs> it, it was called The Passion. In fact, um, that movie, you know, it so wrecked me. Who else was wrecked by The Passion? Of course, you know. Like we, and um, uh, they made that movie, and two weeks later, Nick and I, were um, in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, and I was speaking at a church there, and we went out to lunch with a pastor on Sunday, you know, just after church, and we went to lunch, and the movie had just been out. I was wrecked. It was only two weeks out. I'm not normally starstruck, but seriously, Jim Caviezel was in the restaurant, and I, I just was still so overwhelmed by this movie that I, I grabbed Nick, I'll never forget it, very I grabbed his arm and then extremely inappropriately, loudly, very inappropriate, I yelled across the restaurant and went, oh my word, there's Jesus. Okay. Yes. To which my husband said to me, Christine, you would think you might know the difference. And um, I was like freaking out, okay. So then the guy that was with us said, um, you know, I know uh, the person that's with Jim, would you like to meet him? I'm like, yes. I'm like, I stood straight up and I'm walking across the restaurant. My heart's beating. I'm like, I'm going to meet Jesus. I'm going to meet Jesus. I was like, okay. Because at the time I didn't know his name was Jim Caviezel. So all I thought was, I'm Jesus. It's Jesus. Okay. So we get to him and he's like sitting and I'm standing and we're exactly the same height. And so I, I looked at him and my, my friend says to him, um, this is my friend, Christine from Australia. Now, he never said anything about me, just that this is my friend Chris from Australia. So Jim stands up and he looks down at me and I'm like, just like in awe. And he starts, he goes, you're from Australia? He said, there are not many, uh, there are not many believers in Australia, are there? Now, I was freaking out so much that Jesus was talking to me that I like literally, that I, so I went, this is what I said to him, I went, no. No, there are not any believers in Australia. No one believes in Australia. Whoa. Okay, so no joke. For the next 15 minutes, he starts full on preaching to me, like everything, the blood, the resurrection. I mean, he's so passionate. I did not have the heart to tell him I was a Christian. I mean, he was going for it. About 15 minutes in, I'm thinking, if he asks me to pray the sinner's prayer, I'm down. I'm praying, like passion. There's a lot to be said for passion. I know, you know, when you keep the passion in your Christianity, it doesn't become a boring religious obligation because you do what you want from passion. You do what you have to when it's obligation. I remember when I met Nick, um, I was, we were at our Hillsong Bible College and I was a lecturer and he was a student. We're the same age, but he went to college after me. Now at the Hillsong College at the time, there was a rule. Um, and students were not allowed to date one another, but there was no rule for students and teachers. And so, I know, I know, you could go to jail for that now. But anyway, so I, I went, and, and so Nick found out from my closest friend, Kylie, 
that I swam at our local swimming pool at 6 a.m. every morning for fitness. Now, I'd been doing this church for a year. I had never seen him down at the pool in that solid year, ever. But then all of a sudden, after this lecture, I would go down to the pool at 6 a.m. and there was a guy already in the lanes doing laps up and down the pool. And so after about a week, you know, he sort of made it that he accidentally changed lanes during the swim and ran right into me, you know. And so I'm like, hi, Nick. You know, how are you? What, what, what are you doing here? And then he sort of had that male bravado thing. You know, he goes like, what do you mean? What am I doing here? I'm always here at 6 o'clock in the morning. I love swimming at 6 o'clock in the morning. Now, church, I have been married to this man for 20 solid years. Now, I want you to know there's, there's 365 mornings in every one year. So you can multiply 365 times 20 and you could do the math. But I want you to know that never once, not once, not ever, not one morning in 20 years has my husband ever got up at six o'clock in the morning to go swimming at our local swimming pool. Never once. What is my point? That you do what you want from passion that you will get up at five o'clock in the morning, that you will go down and you will swim laps, that you'll get up and no one will have to make you read your Bible. No one has to make you come to church. No one has to make you tithe. No one has to make you keep yourself morally pure. No one has to make you be integrous in the workplace. No one has to make you do your foundational spiritual disciplines because they come from a place of passion. But once you lose your passion, it just all becomes a boring religious obligation. Instead of a get to, it becomes a have to. I have to do this. I have to do that. You know, the interesting thing is Christians shouldn't have to reach the world. We get to. It's actually what God told us to do. It's not a boring religious obligation He placed on us it's a divine assignment he gave us to co-labor with him in the harvest so that we could see his kingdom come here on earth as it is in heaven. It's not a, it's not a religious obligation. Christians ought to be lostologists. You might not know what that word means, but there are things like zoologists, biologists. It's the expert in the study of something. Christians ought to be experts in understanding the lost. Now, we're good at judging the lost. We're good at condemning the lost. We're good at having seminars about the lost. The one thing that we're pretty pathetic at is loving the lost. And the only thing that Jesus really did, he said, let me just sum this whole Christian deal up for you. 613 Old Testament mosaic laws. Let me make them simple. It all comes down to this, these two verses. This one commandment that has two parts and you can't really separate one from the other, that we're to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul and mind and we're to love our neighbour as we love ourselves. Pretty simple, 613 Old Testament mosaic laws and God says, here's the Cliff Notes version. If you know nothing else, it's this. No, you don't need to know too much Greek, Hebrew and Aramaic. You don't need to give 200 exegetical sermons on the Levitical priesthood. Why don't we just start with loving God and loving people? Why don't we just make it all very, very simple that this is actually all about loving God and loving people. And if you ask me what the greatest challenge in the church is and for us as leaders is I wonder if we really do love people. It is interesting when I show videos of what's happening with the Syrian refugee crisis, the interesting thing I hear from Christian leaders about the fact this could be the biggest Trojan horse of the spread of Islam into Europe, it, it is. Yeah, no doubt. But you know, there are people, human beings created in the image of God. They bear the image of God. If we want to get theological, imago Dei, we can go into all our Latin and just, we just say it in English. Every human being is created in the image of God. And so the fact of the matter is, there ought to be a basic humanity where we as Christians that are born again sons and daughters of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords ought to love what God loves. And God loves people. God loves people. I think the greatest challenge with leaders is we don't really love people. We want to grow our churches. We love numbers. We love results. We love the glitz and the glamour. But I wonder if we really love people. Because if we love people, it would change so much. 
Are we truly lostologists? Do we truly understand the lost? John 3, 17, Jesus said, I didn't come into the world to condemn the world. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. So not only did God so love the world that he gave his son, God also didn't send his son to condemn the world. We're so good at judging. We're so good at condemning. We're so good at mass hysteria and fear. And the blood moon happened two days ago and we're all still here. I mean, seriously, some of the stuff we're wasting time, energy, money, resource and preaching time on. But we're supposed to be lostologists. We ought to be brilliant at loving and understanding the lost. The Christian church ought to be better than anybody else on the earth. As human beings created in the image of God that believe that everyone has innate dignity because they're created by God. The church ought to have a passion for people that nobody else could. But people have a greater passion for their animals and whales and trees than the church has for people. And we could go off on there for the next hour. And if you wanted to sum it all up into why I think we are where we are, I just think there is a love problem. That's the issue. There's a love problem. Leaders don't love. We want more principles on growth, but we need tender hearts to love better. Theologically, scripturally, biblically, why, what would I base this on? Well, Luke 15, to me, is one of the greatest chapters on the lost in all of scripture. You won't find this from Genesis to Revelation anywhere else. You will not find one chapter Three parables on one subject, Jesus wants us to understand the lost. In Luke 15, Jesus talks about a lost sheep. He talks about a lost coin. He talks about a lost son. I'm talking to leaders here, so I don't need to read the text. How many of us have preached so many sermons? But the point of that whole chapter is Jesus is trying to help us, his church, understand the lost. Because we ought to understand the lost. There's a lost sheep, there's a lost coin, there's a lost son. He's saying, let me give you a very quick understanding of really why people end up lost. Not that that really matters. Because sometimes we want to have more seminars on how people end up lost than actually doing anything about the fact that they are lost. But Jesus said, let me just help you. We have a lost sheep. I'm from Australia. We understand sheep. You could be driving down the street. And, you know, at the end of the day, there's a paddock and it's got 500 sheep here. And then there's one little sheep sort of by itself. Now, that sheep did not set out that morning to be lost. That sheep just had its little head down. It was eating grass. It was preoccupied. Stuck its head up at the end of the day and went, bah. And that being interpreted is, I'm lost. That's it. It's not complicated. We got a whole lot of people and they're not big, filled with demons and evil. They just are preoccupied. They're trying to pay their mortgage. They're trying to keep their kids off drugs. They're trying to maybe keep their marriage together. They're just trying to get their career. They're just preoccupied with life. And they've ended up lost. He talks about a woman with a coin. The coin didn't just get lost by itself. The woman was careless with the coin. And the coin ended up lost. We have a generation with whom people have been careless. The education system has been careless. The political system has been careless. The media has been careless. Parents have been careless. On a personal level, I was lost. People were careless. I was abandoned in a hospital when I was born. I was sexually abused for 12 years. People that should have been taking care of me were careless with my life. And I ended up lost. We have a generation with whom those who have been given stewardship over that generation have been profoundly careless with that generation and they've ended up lost. Then we have a son and we think, well, what about when it's of your own volition? What if you made the decision, Christine, what about all those bad, evil people and they just chose themselves to turn their back on God and leave church and just get involved with the world? You know, There are so many sermons about the prodigal son and I'm not here to expound any of those, but I'm simply here to maybe offer just a little different take on that. I I, I tend to think that the kid just miscalculated. 
He thought that a life without the father would be better than a life with the father. And he ended up lost. So we've got a whole lot of people in willful disobedience. Absolutely. But they have profoundly miscalculated that a life without the father would be better than a life with the father. And they've ended up lost. And essentially Jesus is saying, I'm not here to really expound any of this. I just want you to know that it doesn't matter whether it's because people are preoccupied or whether because people have been careless or because someone miscalculated. The point is people are lost. And our job is to go and seek and save that which is lost. We are to love the lost. There ought to be the problem here is a love problem. It's a love problem. And so he says, you are my spiritual GPS system, church. That's what we are. You know, for the sake of our marriage a few years ago, Nick and I in Australia um, went and got a navigation device for our car. And um, we, we were always, um, you know, apparently I could communicate to the world, but when I'm sitting next to Nick in a car, he does not like me to tell him where to go. And so it, um, it, was, it just caused all manner of contention. So we went to this shop in Australia where we bought this thing called a Navman. That was the GPS thing. And so it was false advertising and it was a lie. Because when I put, we put the Navman in the car and we pressed the button for the Navman to talk to us, it wasn't a nav man that talked to us. It was a nav woman that talked to us. And, um, and that, what really astounded me was when this woman was telling my husband where to go, she listened to him. And um, I, I found a real problem with that because I've birthed two children for this man and he wouldn't listen to me, but he would listen to this woman on this navigation device to tell him where to go. And so, you know, every now and again, I called her Matilda because I'm from Australia and Every now and again, I would get in the car with Matilda because I wanted to show her who was the boss. And so I put Matilda on. And then I love her because Matilda would say, next exit on the right, you know, off the freeway. And um, I would be like, out loud, I'd look at her and say, no. And it would make me feel really good. I'd say, no. And I would just go past it. And then I loved it because she would get all foggy and snowy and I could see she was going into cardiac arrest. It was fantastic. And so then I would just take the next turn off and then she would flatline. She's out. I thought, I beat you. You just had a heart attack. It was fantastic. And then it would take some time and then these words would appear on the screen. The words would start flashing. Rerouting, rerouting, rerouting. And every time those words rerouting would appear on the screen, I would always think that's exactly what God is telling us to do. Would you get on the exit ramps of life and would you help to reroute people that when they get off track for the purpose for which they were designed, a relationship with a loving father, that you are in your marketplace and us as leaders training and equipping the saints to do the work of the ministry in our churches, we are there to tell them when you go to school, when you're at university, when you're in the marketplace, you are actually a spiritual GPS system and your job is to help reroute all of those that are getting off track to get back into alignment with their God-given destiny, their God-given purpose, and their relationship with Jesus. That's what we are. The church on the earth is God's spiritual GPS system. So I wonder, reaching people is so important to God that it's the last thing that Matthew records that Jesus told us to do before he ascended into heaven. He rose again from the dead to give us our assignment. That's how important it is. And he's going to do it through his church. See, we talk so much about the lost, but I have to wonder if, um, I have to wonder sometimes who's lost. You know, my mother lives in Australia. If I'm to write her a note and um, send a letter or send her a, you know, a, a package from UPS, and I send it here from America to Australia. If that package, if that letter does not get to my mother in Australia, we don't call UPS and say, my mother is lost. We call UPS and say, the letter is lost. Scripture says that you and I are living epistles. We are God's love letter written to a lost and a broken world. Sometimes I wonder whether the letter has been lost in translation. 
more than the people are lost. I wonder whether we've forgotten our God-given assignment in this world. We have a job to do and we need to stop arguing about small matters that are secondary issues because we have a world that is literally dying. In America, so many changes have happened politically, legislatively, in so many realms of society. Finally, we're waking up and going, we're not in Kansas anymore. And we're not going back. We're never going back. And so we get back now to going, what is our actual mission? What is our God assignment? As leaders, what are we on this earth to do as Christian leaders in the body of Christ? As church leaders, what has our Father commissioned us to do? Because whatever assignment He's got for us has not changed because a political situation might have changed or a legislative situation may have changed or something may have changed in Hollywood or something may have changed with the education. That God's assignment hasn't changed because things around us in culture have changed. And so the issue is we just need all hands on deck to remember that we've been sent. What's happened to the church is we've become lost in our debates, we've become lost in our factions and our denominations, we've become lost in our competition and our comparisons, we've become lost in our pursuit of comfort and safety, we've become lost in our pursuit of selfish ambition, we've become lost in our religious rituals, we've become lost in our indifference and our apathy, we've become lost in our fear, we've become lost in our pursuit of personal piety, we've become lost in our self-righteousness, we've become lost in our separation and our segregation, we've become lost lost from our purpose and we're lost trying to give the lost directions so you go Chris why do you say we're lost because I'm going to read you something that is so critical we've talked about it so much in church life but I think we've missed a major part of this in John 17 and we all talk about the great chapter of unity and that Jesus isn't going to return until there's unity. And unity is more than Baptists and Pentecostals and everybody else holding hands and singing Kumbaya. That's not the unity that God is talking about. There's something at a much deeper level that he's talking about. But in John 17, in this incredible prayer, where we get to eavesdrop on Jesus praying to the Father, it's pretty profound that we get to lean in and eavesdrop. And what I love about this prayer is that Jesus make sure that he tells us what he's not praying as well as what he is praying. It's not that he needs to tell God what he's not praying because like he is God and he's talking to the Father and they kind of know really what's going on. But he knows that we're about to eavesdrop on this conversation. So he says, for the sake of them, I better make sure that they know what I'm not saying so that I read into it the wrong way. So in John 17, we will just pick it up in verse 11. Jesus says, I will remain in the world no longer. But they are still in the world. And I am coming to you, Holy Father. Protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and I kept them safe by the name you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction so that Scripture would be fulfilled. I'm coming to you now. But I say these things while I'm still in the world so they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I, give, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them. For they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world. I think that verse has been taken out of most people's Bibles. John 17, 15. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. This is not rocket science. This is not rocket science. Father, I do not pray that you take them out of the world but that you keep them from the evil one. As you sent me, I sent them. That's what Jesus did. He didn't send us to run away from the world. 
He didn't send us to go into a little retreat and stockpile and just wait for the rapture and pray doom and gloom on everybody else. He sent us into the midst of the world. And because he is omnipotent, omniscient, and omnipresent, he was well aware of the condition of the world in 2015. He's not in heaven freaking out at any kind of economic collapse. It's not that the streets of heaven of gold are are going down in in value. It's okay. It's all all right. Just because Mr. Dow Jones, whoever he is, but he makes us very depressed because he has schizophrenic attacks. He goes up and down, up and down, up and down, and the whole world gets depressed. God's like, it's fine. We're good up here. We're good. We haven't gone down. Our index hasn't gone down. It's okay. Just because there's a change of a political leader, God's not like, whoa, I'm freaking out. My plan can't happen now because that leader got in. I'm sure he's thinking it's fine because last I checked, the government was on my shoulders. It's cool. It's cool. I'm still pretty feeling okay. Oh, I'm not freaking out because of that legislative change because you really have never been able to legislate the human heart. It's okay. We're doing good. I've transformed the heart. I don't need to legislate the heart. It's okay. I will take out your heart of stone and I'll put in a heart of flesh. It's all right. I work it all. But the church is like, oh my God. And God's like, it's okay. It's all right. I'm not freaking out. I wish my church wouldn't freak out because that might give better confidence to the world. They might actually think we believe what we preach. They might actually think we've read the Bible and we believe it. And so... The deal is, he said, I'm sending you into 2015 North America. Yep, I know what they're going to change in legislation in that year. Yep, well aware of what's going to happen in politics. Whew, I really know what's going to happen in Wall Street as well. I'm very aware of what's coming out of Hollywood. I certainly know what they've done to the education. Yes, I'm well aware. It's part of my eternal plan. In my sovereignty, it's okay. You don't need to freak out. I'm in control. And when I look at everyone that I want to be alive on the planet at that time and the people that I want to be my church at that time, the people that I want to be light in the midst of the darkness, he found you. And he plucked you out of eternity and he positioned you in time and he made sure that you would be pastoring your church in your area at this time in the midst of darkness so that you could be light in the midst of darkness. It's not like, oh, I would have a bigger church if it was easier, if there was different. And God's like, what are you talking about? I put you there to be salt and light and to make disciples and to bring transformation to the city around you. That's what you're there for, not just to do a religious ritual every week. And so the fact is we're supposed to be different than the world. But this is what happens to us. We read this text and we see that little passage that says, they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. And we go, that's it. I'm not of the world. We are not worldly. I'm going to come out from amongst themest and be yeest separatist. In King James, Englishist, of courseist. Now, worldly, what's worldly? I don't know. So tattoos, drinking, smoking, cussing, um, long hair, short hair, makeup, no makeup, whatever it might be, whichever your religious tradition is, there's a different fad every other week. So whatever it might be this week. I am not worldly. And so I, I, I'm just going to hang on. And I'm not like those big, bad, evil sinners that are worldly with tattoos or whatever. You know, they're, they're just, I'm not worldly. Now, I don't do this. I'm a Christian. I don't drink and I don't smoke and I don't smile and I don't have a personality and I've had a lobotomy, but I'm a Christian because I'm awesome. And I really don't know what I'm supposed to be doing, but I know what I'm not. So I define my whole Christianity by what I no longer do. I'm a Christian. I no longer do drugs. I no longer smoke. I no. I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing, but I can tell you what I don't do. And if truth be told, I'd really like to be doing some of those things. So hurry up, Jesus, because I don't know how long I can't be doing them for. And if I'm out of town at a Christian conference and my wife's not with me, it's amazing what I might be able to get away with. But anyway, right, right now, I'm just, just not. And so here we go. Oh, I don't know. I don't know. Hurry up, Jesus, please. I need the rapture because I really want to sin. And, and I've, my whole Christian life is just hanging on. Jesus died, rose again, just so that I could be tortured. I mean, I'm like, are you serious? But, but that's how we, pro- we project it to people. Because we don't even know what worldly is because we don't read the Bible. 
But if we read the Bible, we would understand that Christianity is not a behavior modification program. You don't have to become a Christian to stop drinking. You, you can apply some cognitive psychological theory and therapy and you could probably give it up. That, that you don't have to become a Christian to, to stop cussing or to stop, 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 stop. What We've reduced it to some psychotherapy behavior modification. And I'm just a Christian and I just don't. And, and I'm just going through my rituals and I've got no idea what to do. But if we read the Bible, we would find that, you know, worldliness, things like lying, cheating. I'll just go through what the Bible says, okay? Lying, cheating, gossip, slander, envy, greed, lust, immorality, idolatry, hatred, discord, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, hatred, fits of rage, unforgiveness, bitterness, lovers of self, money, boastful, proud, without love, rash, conceited, racism, sexism, chauvinism. It's got a whole lot more to do with the internal condition of our heart than anything external in our actions. So this is what we did. We thought, I'm going to come out from amongst thee and be ye just separate. And we drew an artificial social construct around us and we called it the church. And we're totally separated from that world. And we're in here. And the only problem is not here in America, just in Australia. When we came out from amongst them to be ye separate, we brought us with us. So maybe we don't have tattoos or cuss or drink or smoke, but lying, cheating, gossip, slander, unforgiveness, bitterness, the list goes on, lashing out in tweets, slandering in blogs, talking about other ministries, jealousy, selfish ambition, they're bigger than me, they're selling more records than me, they got more preaching invitation, oh, so here's the tissue, instead of being over here and being in the world, but not of it, we're over here, and we are of the world, but not in it. It is very hard, leaders, to change a world you're not in. It is even harder to change a world that you are the same substance as. Salt and light and the whole theme of this conference. Salt and light are catalytic agents. They transform the very nature of the substance that they touch. You can't change the nature of something if you're the same nature as that thing. You can get away with religious rituals because over here, when you're of the world but not in it, you don't even need to be a Christian. You just need to act like one. That's why we have so many religious rules and why we go through so many different systems and formalities because we can control that. Our hearts are a mess. Our hearts are so worldly. We can't change anything, so we put religious rules around people because to be in the world but not of it, now there you've got to be a real Christian. Because have you ever noticed non-Christians know how Christians should act? And they'll call you on it. They'll call you on it. And they think it's really weird when we slander one another and we lie and we cheat and there's selfish ambition and there's gossip and there's murmuring and there's grumbling and there's complaining. Have you ever noticed that? Or what we do is we take a whole bunch of salt and just dump it. Have you ever had a piece of steak and opened an entire packet of salt and thrown it on the steak and said, eat that and enjoy it because this is my moment of dumping it all on you rather than just sprinkling it day by day through our life. See, this is what happens when we're over here. We kind of get through and we get through our religious ritual and then what happens is the evangelist comes to town and then they start preaching. The God, you're preaching, you know, Matthew, go ye into all of the world. And if you're having a really just bad hair day and nothing else is going on in your life, you know, go and, go and make disciples. And, and, and they put this big guilt trip on us and we think, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, that's it. We've all got to go and, and, and make disciples. But that's not my gift mix. That's not my calling. I'm a teacher. I'm a prophet. I'm a pastor. That's not what I'm called. That's not my love language. That's not my strength finder. That's not my personality profile on the disc survey. 
So we write Christian books to excuse Christians from being Christians. It's awesome. It's, it's fascinating to me. And so we go, no, no, that's for the Navy SEALs of the Christian church. That's for the big guns. That's for the Reinhardt Bonkies. That's for the Billy Grahams. That's for the Joyce Meyer. That's for the Chris Canes. That's for those weird evangelist types. That, you know, we just, we've all got those weird ones in the church. So that's what we'll do. We'll give that to them as a mission. So Friday night now, you have got your evangelism mission. And you've got your four spiritual laws track. So get with all your Fruit Loop weirdo evangelist people because the rest of us, we're so busy being deep. We're so busy knowing the Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic that we're just too deep sitting at the feet of Jesus to go into the world that he told us to go into. So we're just going to sit here and we are going to send you because that's your gifting and that's your calling. And I just want to release you to do what you were called to do, even though Jesus told us all to do it, but that's okay. That's for you particular people. And so what I want you to do is get together in your little holy huddle and you can shunda hunter Kawasaki and get your prayer meeting happening and it's awesome and you can just go for it, get yourself all fired up. You've got your four spiritual laws. We're going to let that drawbridge down and we're going out and this is my evangelism night because it's Friday and there's some poor dude in Denver and he's been working hard all week and all he wants to do is take his girlfriend out for dinner. But no, this is my evangelism night. So I am going to stop him in the middle of the street and say, did you know that Jesus Christ died for your sin? If you don't repent right now, you're going to die and go to everlasting hell. I want you to say this incantational prayer after me. Oh my gosh, it's 10 o'clock. I'm a Christian. I turn into a pumpkin. If you want to look like me, sing like me, dance like me, next Sunday at 10 o'clock, I want you to come with me to this place. And so then I go, bless you, see you. And I run back over here and the drawbridge goes back up and I go, praise God, hallelujah. I just did evangelism for the week. I got another notch on my Bible and I feel fantastic. And then I just get back to my normal life. And we've reduced evangelism to something that someone else does because it's not my gift mix. And they do it at some appointed time because that's not my calling. And then we just stay totally, totally disconnected from the world in the interim. And then we wonder why our churches are declining and then we wonder why our churches are struggling because we're putting all our time, all our energy, all of our resource into trying to keep this artificial social construct alive with programs. But the church of Jesus Christ was created to thrive in the womb of the world. And we in the womb of the world connected by a spiritual umbilical called the Holy Ghost to heaven. We have access to every resource. And so we are not on some life support system disconnected from the world. We are on God's support system, totally in the world, but not of the world, bringing transformation to the world around us. That is what the church of Jesus Christ is called to do. That's what we're called to do, to transform that world around us. And so while we're so busy being of it and trying to get good little Christians to be good little Christianettes, to fit into life, the work of reaching the world it's too important to leave, the band can come up, to just leave to the missionaries. There's too much to do. We're all called to be on mission. And those of us that are pastors and leaders, our job, Ephesians 4, is to train and equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. To mobilize not good little Christianettes that come to listen to nice little sermonettes and then do our little pirouettes. We've made the pulpit the Christian entertainment service. Who's the biggest Christian celebrity? Who's the greatest little artist that we can bring? And Jesus goes, wow, there was a time when it was just enough that I would be at church, everyone would turn up. I thought that was enough. I thought that was enough. But we've so transformed it. And we've so confused gift with anointing. We're so eager to grow. We want the next biggest gifted person. But let me tell you, it's only the anointing that breaks yokes and chains, not gifts. Not gifts. It's the anointing. And we need a generation that has a heart broken for the lost. We really don't need another evangelism seminar. We need a heartbreaking workshop. We need hearts to be broken for lost people. Jesus said, for this cause I was born, John 18, 37. I always love this verse. For this cause I was born, there's a cause. There's a cause. That my life would bear witness to the truth. Are we bearing witness? Jesus says, you need to wait and I'm going to send another, a comforter, the Holy Spirit, that He would give you power to be witnesses, not power to do witnessing. And we think the gifts of the Spirit is just so that I can have the power to do witnessing. And God says, whew, I've called you all to have the power to be witnesses. That's what being light in the world is. Let your light so shine before men, why? That they may see your good works and do what? Glorify our Father in heaven. 
If we're going to be a light in this world, we have to have a different spirit to the world. So how do you be different? What does that really come down to? Because it starts with us leaders. Don't lie. Don't exaggerate. Don't lie with numbers. Don't lie on social media. Don't gossip. Don't slander. Don't talk about other ministries. Don't go blogging about your latest theological opinion. Who cares anyway? Who cares? Don't be envious. Don't steal even if it's someone else's reputation. Don't have fits of rage. Be judgmental, negative, critical or faithless. Forgive people. Love people. Serve people. Don't be a lover of money. In ministry, you don't have to have money to love money. Be very careful. Don't be a lover of, lover of ple- pleasure. Really make sure that it's godly ambition, not selfish ambition. Don't have dissensions and factions and this denomination and that denomination. Don't be proud or abusive or conceited. It is amazing to me, the pride and the arrogance of alpha leaders. I could say this because I'm not coming from bottom of the pile. I run a few of the largest organizations in the world in the areas that I do. So I'm saying it as someone that's, that, that, that is speaking to, not down. Saying all of us, this is the stuff that defines us. Because you'll reproduce who you are, not what you say. And we need to reproduce agents of light in a lost and a broken world which means we need to be that. You know, there is no place for us to run because the world's getting darker. Doesn't make me scared. I actually don't know how it could make a Christian leader fearful. It freaks me out when I watch TV and I see Christian TV and I watch the garbage and the fear and the negativity supposed Christian leaders throw out there. Because I'm like, we ought to be giving people hope We ought to be giving people faith because nobody really else knows what's going on because we're on a downward spiral. I mean, I don't know when Jesus is coming back, so don't believe anyone that says they know because Jesus said, I don't know, and you don't know, so have a nice life. You don't know. So don't write another book and waste the ink and make a whole lot of money out of Christian little witchcrafts. It's crazy. You don't know. So how about we work with what we do know? There's a world that's hurting. There's people that need to be reached. There's people that need to be loved. So why don't we get about the Father's business while we're here? You know, I remember um, my little girl, Sophia, when we weren't living here in America, we used to visit. And, um, you know, for an Australian, when you're a visitor here, one of the biggest tourist attractions is like Walmart because um, you have nowhere in Australia where you can go at three o'clock in the morning and buy a gun and underwear and soap powder. It's awesome. There's just nowhere else in the world like America. And so um, I finished preaching one day and we went to Walmart and my little girl at the time, she had an obsession with flashlights. And she was also equally obsessed with Barbie. And back in those days, if you said to my daughter, do you have Jesus in your heart? She would say to me, no, mommy. Daddy said, we're not allowed to have boys. So I have Barbie in my heart and Jesus in my tummy. And so that was awesome theology, but you know, we've got that a bit worked out since then. So I bought her this little Barbie flashlight. And um, I'll never forget this. I was paying for it and she was just there at the end of the counter. And I put the batteries in for her. It was a tiny little thing, a Barbie thing. And I don't know if you've ever been in a Walmart, but Walmart's got really awesome mood lighting. It's like fluoro lights, you know, it's just lights. And, um, and so Sophia's turning on the flashlight, but she couldn't see the light because there was too much light. So she couldn't see the light in a flashlight. And I'll never forget it. As I was paying, she yelled at me. And she said, Mommy, can we please go and find some darkness? Now my kid, if you put her in a dark room with no flashlight, she hates the dark. She would scream, you'd hear her from Australia to here in Denver. But you give that kid a tiny little flashlight 
She's going to close that basement door. She's going to go as deep into that basement as she can because she knows it's not about the depth of the darkness around you. It's about the magnitude of the light within you and the light will dispel the darkness around you. And it would be awesome if the Christian church would understand that greater is He that is in us than he that is in the world. And He sends us into the world to shine His light around the world, to bring hope and mercy and grace and love, not judgment, not condemnation, not hatred, but love and grace and mercy. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. We are the hope of the world. It's the light of Christ within us. I want to end with just reading you one poem. I never asked what time I had to finish because it's safer that way. (laughs) I'm not looking at the pastor. (laughs) One last poem. Talks about a man that fell into a pit but couldn't get himself out. It says a subjective person came along and said, I feel for you down there in the pit. An objective person came along and said, it's logical that someone would fall into that pit. A Christian scientist came along and said, you only think that you're in the pit. A Pharisee came along and said, only bad people fall into the pit. A newspaper reporter wanted an exclusive story on the pit. A fundamentalist said, you deserve your pit. Confucius said, if you listen to me, you wouldn't be in that pit. Buddha said, your pit is a state of mind. A geologist told him to appreciate the rock strata in the pit. A realist said, that's a pit. (laughs) A scientist calculated the pressure necessary to get out of the pit. uh, Sorry, yeah. A tax man asked him if he was paying taxes on the pit. An evasive person came along and avoided the discussion of the pit altogether. A self-pitying person said, you haven't seen anything until you've seen my pit. An optimist said, things could get worse. A pessimist said, things will get worse. A charismatic said, just confess you're not in the pit. (laughs) Jesus came along and knelt down, extended his hand and lifted the man out of the pit. We need a generation of Christians that are simply gonna roll up our sleeves, get involved in the trenches of a lost and a broken humanity and let our light so shine before men that they will see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven. In Jesus' name, in Jesus' name. What our issue is, quite simply, is a love issue. For God so loved the world. Some of us need to stop trying to analyse it. We need to stop trying to judge it. We're not fatalists, but we understand the sovereignty of God. What's going to happen is going to happen. But we have to understand that we're on assignment in the world. That we are full of hope. That we are full of faith. That we are full of love. That we are full of joy. Why do you think the fruit of the Holy Spirit was given? so that we could bear that fruit. And it is to our Father's great glory that we bear much fruit. With all that's happened in this nation, all that is happening is the separation of the sheep and the goats, the wheat and the tares. And God's saying, you've got to live it. And you and I who are Christian leaders in the church are called to produce disciples that live it. Not just add theological information to people's data bank but to equip and train them to do the work of the ministry in a lost and a broken and a dark world that's only getting darker but the darker the darkness gets the brighter the light shines this is our greatest hour this is our greatest hour so how am I going to ask you to respond I can't do the work of the Holy Spirit only He can And my prayer for you, every one of us at this conference, 
is that the Lord truly breaks our heart again for lost people. Because if our heart's not broken, if we don't feel His heart, we need our heart to beat for what God's heart beats for. We need to not just be able to flick through the channels and skip over from a Syrian crisis to the football without our heart being moved. Flick through the news and hear of rape and murder and pain and suffering and just flip through. Jesus never got compassion fatigue. His leaders don't need to get compassion fatigue. You just got to ask where your heart's at. Where's your heart at? And that's really my question tonight. And so I don't know what you guys might want to sing, but I want the worship team to lead us. And I'm going to ask God to break our hearts for what breaks His. And as leaders, I think if we can leave this conference, not just with more information, not just more principles, we're going to get a whole lot of good stuff. But a heart that beats for what God's heart beats for, it will leak over into your preaching. It will leak over into your leadership. It will impact every sphere of your life. And some of us just need some good old heart surgery tonight. We just need some heart surgery. So if you're willing and you want God to do that in you, I want you to stand to your feet. You don't have to, but if you do, then the band's going to lead us and I'm going to believe that the Holy Spirit is going to do what only He can do in this moment. Break our hearts and make our hearts beat for what His heart beats for. There's some of us in this room, your heart is weary. You're tired. You're fatigued. Your heart's broken. There's others of you that with a broken heart. There's others of you with a very, very toxic heart. You've been harboring bitterness and unforgiveness. There's stuff going on in your life and ministry and it's a mess. And I'm going to open this altar up and don't leave tonight without doing business with God. You know, it's not often we can get a chance to come away as leaders and do business with God. Where there's a place of true transparency. If it doesn't start with us, it's never going to go down where we need to do some legit business with the Lord and maybe allow Him to create in us once again a clean heart, to get rid of the calloused heart that just life and ministry, it just does it to you sometimes. Some of you have been so hurt and disappointed and disillusioned and that hurt is destroying your heart. The flow of the Holy Spirit's not flowing through you like He could because of what's going on in your heart. So let the Lord do some open heart surgery. If you need to do some business with Him at the altar, you know what, I'm a great believer that sometimes altar calls really do alter stuff on the inside of us. So why don't we worship Him?